Section 15 of Roxana by Daniel Defoe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. And now Amy and I were at leisure to look upon the mischiefs that we had escaped, and had I any religion or any sense of a supreme power managing, directing, and governing in both causes and events in this world. Such a case as this would have given anybody room to have been very thankful to the power, who had not only put such a treasure into my hand, but given me such an escape from the ruin that threatened me. But I had none of those things about me. I had indeed a grateful sense upon my mind of the generous friendship of my deliverer, the Dutch merchant, by whom I was so faithfully served, and by whom, as far as relates to second causes, I was preserved from destruction. I say I had a grateful sense upon my mind of his kindness and faithfulness to me, and I resolved to show him some testimony of it as soon as I came to the end of my rambles. I was yet but in a state of uncertainty, and sometimes that gave me a little uneasiness, too. I had paper indeed for my money, and he had showed himself very good to me in conveying me away, as above. But I had not seen the end of things yet, for unless the bills were paid, I might still be a great loser by my Dutchman. And he might, perhaps, have contrived all that affair of the Jew to put me into a fright, and get me to run away, and that, as if it were to save my life, that if the bills should be refused, I was cheated with a witness and the like, these were but surmises, and indeed were perfectly without cause, for the honest man acted, as honest men always do, with an upright and disinterested principle, and with a sincerity not often to be found in the world. What gain he made by the exchange was just, and was nothing but what was his due, and was in the way of his business, but otherwise he made no advantage of me at all. When I passed in the ship between Dover and Calais, and saw beloved England once more under my view, England which I counted my native country, being the place I was bred up in, though not born there, a strange kind of joy possessed my mind, and I had such a longing desire to be there, that I would have given the master of the ship twenty pistoles to have stood over and set me on shore in the downs when he told me he could not do it, that is, that he durst not do it, if I would have given him a hundred pistols. I secretly wished that a storm would rise that might drive the ship over to the coast of England, whether they would or not, that I might be set on shore anywhere upon English ground. This wicked wish had not been out of my thoughts above two or three hours, but the master steering away to the north as was his course to do. We lost sight of land on that side, and only had the Flemish shore in view on our right hand, or, as the seamen call it, the starboard side. And then, with the loss of the sight, the wish for landing in England abated, and I considered how foolish it was to wish myself out of the way of my business. But if I had been on shore in England, I must go back to Holland on account of my bills, which was so considerable, and I having no correspondence there, 
that I could not have managed it without going myself. But we had not been out of sight of England many hours before the weather began to change. The winds whistled and made a noise, and the seamen said to one another that it would blow hard at night. It was then about two hours before sunset, and we were passed by Dunkirk, and I think they said we were in sight of Ostend. But then the wind grew high, and the sea swelled, and all things looked terrible especially to us that understood nothing but just what we saw before us. In short, night came on, and very dark it was. The wind freshened and blew harder and harder, and about two hours within night it blew a terrible storm. I was not quite a stranger to the sea, having come from Rochelle to England when I was a child, and gone from London by the River Thames to France afterwards, as I have said. But I began to be alarmed a little at the terrible clamour of the men above my head, for I had never been in a storm, and so had never seen the like or heard it, and once offering to look out at the door of the steerage, as they called it, it struck me with such horror, the darkness, the fierceness of the wind, the dreadful height of the waves, and the hurry the Dutch sailors were in, whose language I did not understand one word of, neither when they cursed or when they prayed. I say all these things together filled me with terror, and in short I began to be very much frighted. When I was come back into the great cabin, there sat Amy, who was very seasick, and I had a little before given her a sup of cordial waters to help her stomach. When Amy saw me come back and sit down without speaking, so I did, she looked two or three times up at me at last. She came running to me. Dear madam, says she, what is the matter? What makes you look so pale? Why, you went well. What is the matter? I said nothing still, but held up my hands two or three times. Amy doubled her importunities. Upon that I said no more, but stepped to the steerage door, and look out as I did. So she went away immediately, and looked too as I had bidden her. But the poor girl came back again in the greatest amazement and horror that ever I saw any poor creature in, wringing her hands and crying out she was undone, she was undone, she should be drowned, they were all lost. Thus she ran about the cabin like a mad thing, and as perfectly out of her senses as any one in such a case be supposed to be. I was frighted myself, but when I saw the girl in such a terrible agony, it brought me a little to myself, and I began to talk to her, and put her in a little hope. I told her there was many a ship in a storm that was not cast away, and I hoped we should not be drowned, that it was true, the storm was very dreadful, but I did not see that the seamen were so much concerned as we were so I talked to her as well as I could, though my heart was full enough of it as well as Amy's, and death began to stare in my face, ay, and something else too, that is to say, conscience, and my mind was very much disturbed, but I had nobody to comfort me. 
but Amy being in so much worse a condition, that is to say, so much more terrified at the storm than I was, I had something to do to comfort her. She was, as I have said, like one distracted, and went raving about the cavern, crying out she was undone, undone, she should be drowned, and the like. And at last, the ship giving a jerk, by the force, I suppose, of some violent wave, it threw poor Amy quite down, for she was weak enough before with being seasick, and as it threw her forward, the poor girl struck her head against a bulkhead, as the seamen call it, of the cabin, and laid her as dead as a stone upon the floor or deck. That is to say, she was so to all appearance. I cried out for help, but it had not been all one to have cried out on the top of a mountain, when nobody had been within five miles of me, for the seamen were so engaged, and made so much noise, that nobody heard me, or came near me. I opened the great cabin door, and looked into the steerage to cry for help, but there, to increase my fright, were two seamen on their knees at prayers, and only one man who steered, and he made a groaning noise, too, which I took to be saying his prayers. But it seems it was answering to those above, and they called to him to tell him which way to steer. Here was no help for me, or for poor Amy and there she lay still so and in such a condition that i did not know whether she was dead or alive in this fright i went to her and lifted her a little way up setting her on the deck with her back to the boards of the bulkhead and i got a little bottle out of my pocket and held it to her nose and rubbed her temples and what else i could do but still amy showed no signs of life till i felt for her pulse could hardly distinguish her to be alive. However, after a great while, she began to revive, and in about half an hour she came to herself, but remembered nothing at first of what had happened to her for a good while more. When she recovered more fully, she asked me where she was. I told her she was in the ship yet, but God knows how long it might be. Why, madame, says she, is not the storm over? No, no, says I. Amy. Why, madame, says she, it was calm just now, meaning when she was in the swooning fit occasioned by her fall. Calm, Amy, says I. Tis far from calm. It may be it will be calm by and by when we are all drowned and gone to heaven. Heaven, madame, says she. What makes you talk so? Heaven? I go to heaven? No, no. If I am drowned, I am damned. Don't you know what a wicked creature I have been? I have been a whore to two men, and have lived a wretched and abominable life of vice and wickedness for fourteen years. Oh, madame, you know it, and God knows it, and now I am to die be drowned. Oh, what will become of me? I am undone for ever. I, madame, for ever, to all eternity. Oh, I am lost. I am lost. If I am drowned, I am lost for ever. All these, you will easily suppose, must be so many stabs into the very soul of one in my own case. 
it immediately occurred to me poor amy what art thou that i am not what hast thou been that i have not been nay i am guilty of my own sin and thine too and it came to my remembrance that i had not only been the same with amy but that i had been the devil's instrument to make her wicked that i had stripped her prostituted her to the very man that i had been not with myself that she had but followed me i had been her wicked example and i had led her into all and that as we had sinned together now we were likely to sink together all this repeated itself to my thoughts at that very moment and every one of amy's cries sounded thus in my ears I am the wicked cause of it all. I have been thy ruin, Amy. I have brought thee to this, and now thou art to suffer for the sin I have enticed thee to. And if thou art lost for ever, what must I be? What must be my portion? It is true, this difference was between us said all these things within myself and sighed and mourned inwardly but amy as her temper was more violent spoke aloud and cried and called out aloud like one in agony i had but small encouragement to give her and indeed could say but very little but i got her to compose herself a little and not let any of the people of the ship understand what she meant or what she said, but even in her greatest composure she continued to express herself with the utmost dread and terror on account of the wicked life she had lived, crying out she should be damned, and the like, which was very terrible to me, who knew what condition I was in myself. Upon these serious considerations I was very penitent too for my former sins and cried out though softly two or three times lord have mercy upon me to this i added abundance of resolutions of what a life i would live if it should please god but to spare my life but this one time how would i live a single and virtuous life and spend a great deal of what i had thus wickedly got in acts of charity and doing good under these dreadful apprehensions i looked back at the life i had led with the utmost contempt and abhorrence i blushed and wondered at myself how i could act thus how i could divest myself of modesty and honour and prostitute myself for gain and i thought if ever it should please god to spare me this one time from death it would not be possible that I should be the same creature again. Amy went farther. She prayed. She resolved. She vowed to lead a new life if God would spare her but this time. Now began to be daylight, for the storm held all night long, and it was some comfort to see the light of another day which none of us expected but the sea went mountains high and the noise of the water was as frightful to us as the sight of the waves 
nor was any land to be seen, nor did the seamen know whereabout they were. At last, to our great joy, they made land, which was in England, and on the coast of Suffolk, and the ship being in the utmost distress, they ran for the shore at all hazards, and with great difficulty got into Harwich, where they were safe as to the danger of death. But the ship was so full of water and so much damaged, that if they had not laid her upon the shore the same day, she would have sunk before night, according to the opinion of the seamen, and of the workmen on shore too, who were hired to assist them in stopping their leaks. Amy was revived as soon as she heard they had espied land, and went out upon the deck, but she soon came in again to me. Oh, madame, says she, there's the land indeed to be seen. It looks like a ridge of clouds, and may be all a cloud for aught I know. But if it be land, tis a great way off, and the seas in such a combustion we shall all perish before we can reach it. "'Tis the dreadfullest sight to look at the waves that ever were seen. "'Why, they are as high as mountains. "'We shall certainly be all swallowed up, for the land is so near.' "'I had conceived some hope that if they saw land we should be delivered, "'and I told her she did not understand things of that nature. "'She might be sure if they saw land they would go directly towards it "'and would make into some harbour.' but it was, as Amy said, a frightful distance to it. The land looked like clouds, and the sea went as high as mountains, so that no hope appeared in the seeing of the land, but we were in fear of foundering before we could reach it. This made Amy so desponding still, but as the wind, which blew from the east, or that way, drove us furiously towards the land, so, when about half an hour after I stepped to the steerage door and looked out, I saw the land much nearer than Amy represented it. So I went in and encouraged Amy again, and indeed was encouraged myself. In about an hour, or something more, we saw to her infinite satisfaction the open harbour of Harwich, the vessel standing directly towards it. In a few minutes more the ship was in smooth water, to our inexpressible comfort, and thus I had, though against my will and contrary to my true interest, what I had wished for, to be driven away to England, though it was by a storm. Nor did this incident do either Amy or me much service, for the danger being over, the fears of death vanished within it. I and our fear of what was beyond death, also. Our sense of the life we had lived went off, and with our return to life, our wicked taste of life returned, and we both the same as before, if not worse. So certain is it that the repentance which is brought about by the mere apprehensions of death wears off, as those apprehensions wears off, and deathbed repentance or storm repentance, which is much the same, is seldom true. 
However, I do not tell you that this was all at once, neither. The fright we had at sea lasted a little while afterwards, at least the impression was not quite blown off as soon as the storm, especially poor Amy. As soon as she set her foot on shore, she fell flat upon the ground and kissed it, and gave God thanks for her deliverance from the sea. And turning to me when she got up, I hope, madame, says she, you will never go upon the sea again. I know not what ailed me, not I, but Amy was much more penitent at sea, and much more sensible of her deliverance when she landed, and was safe than I was. I was in a kind of stupidity, I know not well what to call it. I had a mind full of horror in the time of the storm, and saw death before me as plainly as Amy, but my thoughts got no vent, as Amy's did. I had a silent, sullen kind of grief, which could not break out, either in words or tears, and which was therefore much the worse to bear. I had a terror upon me, for my wicked life passed, and firmly believed I was going to the bottom, launching into death, where I was to give an account of all my past actions, and in this state and on that account I looked back upon my wickedness with abhorrence, as I have said above, but I had no sense of repentance from the true motive of repentance. I saw nothing of the corruption of nature, the sin of my life, as an offence against God as a thing odious to the holiness of his being, as abusing his mercy, and despising his goodness. In short, I had no thorough effectual repentance, no sight of my sins in their proper shape, no view of a redeemer or hope in him. I had only such a repentance as a criminal has at the place of execution, who is sorry, not that he has committed the crime, as it is a crime, but sorry that he is to be hanged for it. It is true, Amy's repentance wore off too, as well as mine, but not so soon. However, we were both very grave for a time. As soon as we could get a boat from the town, we went on shore, and immediately went to a public house in the town of Harwich, where we were to consider seriously what was to be done, and whether we should go up to London or stay till the ship was refitted, which they said would be a fortnight, and then go to Holland, as we intended, and as business required. Reason directed that I should go to Holland, for there I had all my money to receive, and there I had persons of good reputation and character to apply to, having letters to them from the honest Dutch merchant at Paris. They might perhaps give me a recommendation again to merchants in London, so I should get acquaintance with some people of figure, which is what I loved. Whereas now I knew not one creature in the whole city of London, or anywhere else that I could go and make myself known to. Upon these considerations I resolved to go to Holland, whatever came of it. 
but Amy cried and trembled, and was ready to fall into fits when I did, but mention going upon the sea again, and begged of me not to go, or if I would go, that I would leave her behind, or as to send her a begging. The people in the inn laughed at her and jested with her, asked her if she had any sins to confess, that she was ashamed should be heard of, and that she was troubled with an evil conscience, told her if she came to see and to be in a storm, if she had lain with her master, she would certainly tell a mistress of it, and that it was a common thing for poor maids to confess all the young men they had lain with. And there was one poor girl that went over with her mistress, whose husband was uh, in the city of London, who confessed in the terror of a storm that she had lain with her master, and all the apprentices so often, and in such and such places, and made the poor mistress, when she returned to London, fly at her husband, and make such a stir as was indeed the ruin of the whole family. Amy could bear all that well enough for though she had indeed lain with her master, it was with her mistress's knowledge and consent, and which was worse, was her mistress's own doing. I record it to the reproach of my own vice, and to expose the excesses of such wickedness as they deserve to be exposed. I thought Amy's fear would be over, by the time the ship would be gotten ready, I find the girl was rather worse and worse, and when I came to the point that we must go on board or lose the passage, Amy was so terrified that she fell into fits. So the ship went away without us, but my going being absolutely necessary, as above, I was obliged to go in the packet-boat some time after and leave Amy behind at Harwich, but with directions to go to London and stay there, to receive letters and orders from me what to do. Now I was become, from a lady of pleasure, a woman of business, and of great business, too, I assure you. I got me a servant at Harwich to go over with me, who had been at Rotterdam, knew the place, and spoke the language was a great help to me, and away I went. I had a very quick passage and pleasant weather, and coming to Rotterdam soon found out the merchant to whom I was recommended, who received me with extraordinary respect, and first acknowledged the accepted bill for four thousand pistoles, which he afterwards paid punctually. Other bills that I had also payable at Amsterdam he procured to be received for me, and whereas one of the bills at one thousand two hundred crowns was protested at Amsterdam, he paid it me himself, for the honour of the endorser, as he called it, which was my friend, the merchant at Paris. There I entered into a negotiation by his means for my jewels, and he brought me several jewellers to look on them, and particularly one to value them and tell me what every particular was worth. This was a man who had great skill in jewels, but did not trade at that time, and he was desired by the gentleman that I was with, to see that I might not be imposed upon. All this work took me up near half a year, and by managing my business thus myself, and having large sums to do with, 
became as expert in as any she merchant of them all. I had credit in the bank for a large sum of money, and bills and notes for much, much more. End of section 15